as we continue to worship here today, we have to wrap up one last thing uh, for here today as we've been doing a series of denominational updates. Hold on just a second. Been doing a series of denominational updates, and we had one last one for here today, as we mentioned before. For those that haven't been with us, uh, there's a very likely chance that the United Methodist Church may split into uh, at least two or even three denominations uh, here sometime in the future. We don't know exactly when that may be. Uh, it could happen relatively soon. It could be even a couple years off. But at some point, um, the general consensus is that our, the denomination as a whole will be separating at some point. And we've been looking at the different uh, groups, if you will, the different three kind of different ways that we can kind of classify, if you will, people's thoughts, persuasions, and ideas, and why they're so different. And this week, we come to the last one, and that is uh, the more orthodox, traditional, or sometimes called the evangelical-type church. Uh, now, just so you know, I'm going to briefly describe this group because you pretty much understand this group uh, for the most part. And so I'm going to briefly describe them here today. I'm going to spend some time in the critique as well as uh, talk a little bit more about what separates this group from some of the centrists in the, in the United Methodist Church. So those that would want to stay in the United Methodist Church um, that would see a lot of these same things that we're talking about here today as we describe this group. But what are some of those critical differences and why are they different and those type of things. So. The first thing I wanted to mention to you is that this Orthodox group of the church basically believes a lot of the things you've heard that the church believes uh, throughout its history. They believe, for instance, scripture is the primary means of understanding God or morality or who Jesus is. Uh, they would understand, for instance, we said the Apostles' Creed here today. There's also the Nicene Creed. That's another famous creed of the church. They would believe every single one of those words exactly how they plainly say in the, the creed itself. And so when they say, you know, that Jesus Christ uh, has all these different qualities about them, they would believe each of those and would truly believe that those were true and not only true from the scripture, what it's teaching, but that it's true in their experience as well. They would hold um, the cross and the resurrection uh, as a very pivotal moment and whole entire belief and understanding. And that basically not only do they believe the cross and resurrection is, but the specific meaning of the cross and resurrection is part of their belief of what it means. And so what I mean by that is when you look at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's different ways you can look at that and understand it. And they're not mutually exclusive of each other per se, but there's different ways to understand what that work does in our life and how does it work. Well, one of those understandings is the idea of atonement, which basically means this, is that everyone we know is sinners and that we need a right relationship with God, but we're not able to do that without the work of Jesus Christ. And specifically part of what the cross and resurrection does is it pays for our sin, that it atones for our sin. And that in God's sight, it gets wiped away clear, and the, the debt is paid, if you will, and that we're able to have a relationship with God once again. Traditionalists would say that's part of the, for sure, you can't separate that from the work of the cross. Whereas some of the other groups would say, well, we, no, that's not very much how we understand. In fact, some of them would look at that and say, no, that's not how God works. That's not who God is. Um, and, and they would deny that portion of what the cross and resurrection means, even if they believed the cross and resurrection literally happened, but that's a, that's a key kind of sticking point too. They would believe things as miracles or were happened just as the way scripture said. Now it is important to separate this group from fundamentalist because oftentimes that's a label that gets placed upon them. What fundamentalism means is that everything in scripture is literal, but that's not the orthodox understanding. For instance, orthodox understanding takes into account form such as poetry. It takes into account language and how it's used. So instance, hyperbole and things like that. And so for instance, uh, just to separate the two, a fundamentalist would look at, for instance, the book of Psalms, which is poetry, and they would say, you know, when it talks about things like where the sun and the earth are in relation to each other, they would understand that literally has to be true. 
Whereas an orthodox person would say, it doesn't matter scientifically what that's trying to say. What it's trying to say is the truth of you and I, how we experience it as humans, and there's poetry to it. Or for instance, language and hyperbole, when Jesus says, you know, if the eye makes you sin, pluck it out. Or if your right hand, you know, causes you to sin, chop it off. He's using the language of the day in hyperbole. So literally, he's not saying take your eye out and take your, cut off your hand, you know, and those type of things. So there is a, there's a differentiation there that often gets uh, set there. Now, much of what they believe you understand, but specifically when it comes to the hot button issue of homosexuality and LGBTQIA, or just what commonly is said, the queer community, um, their question to this would be, or what their answer to this, and what, you know, if you say, what is the scriptural, or what is the church's stance on this, they would say this, is they would ask primarily, what does the scripture say? And they would see that as the revealing of not only what is morality and who God is, but actually our morality and how we live. And so it's hard to always say all in a group, but practically speaking, all in this group would ultimately, even though there would be a lot of conversation of scripture and interpretation, practically all of them believe that the scripture teaches that the proper place for sex is in a marriage between one man, one woman, held in fidelity with one another. And so, uh, and so that is obviously a big difference uh, as we look forward to these other groups as well. As you look at who they also are, um, the WCA, which is the Wesleyan Covenant Association, has been sort of the, the branch of the domination that has sort of been this group and kind of the, the big group, if you will, of the Orthodox people of the Methodist Church. They have announced that there is going to be a new denomination uh, someday that's called the Global Methodist Church. Now, it has not launched, per se, yet, but a lot of the groundwork has been laid. And so, for instance, they have a new book of what they call Doctrine and Discipline, which is kind of like in the Methodist Church, we have a book of discipline. Um, it's a work in progress, per se, but if it needed to, it could be launched tomorrow. The church could launch um, if it needed to, but um, they're still working on it, doing different things. Now, I do want to mention to you that as you look at this group, maybe one of the key ways to also understand them is when they talk about a new denomination, it's not just United Methodist Part 2. They're actually kind of just like the, the LMX church. Uh, they're really looking at what are some of the ways church also it can be different and be more like the church that we think Scripture calls us to be. So, for instance, they're taking on things, and while this could be a whole laundry list of stuff of the way the church works as a denomination, uh, the ones that may be key for you to understand are kind of this. First of all, the role of the bishop would be kind of different. The role of the bishop would be less about administration of the church or assigning appointments, and it would be more about teaching the church and teaching and preaching and things like that and holding on to the beliefs of the church and making sure that those are the beliefs of the church. They would see uh, most likely itinerancy would either be totally done or in a very minimal way. So itinerancy, if you didn't know, is where in our denomination the bishop appoints pastors to local churches. So for instance, I was appointed to this church. Yay, I didn't get moved, by the way. I should probably share that with you. I didn't get moved, so I'm going to be with you all till next uh, July at least, or at least through June. Um, but officially, you know, every year it comes up, and the bishop could say, and even technically throughout the year, the bishop would say, hey, your services are needed somewhere else. We need you to move. And then I say, yes, sir, may I have another? Or yes, ma'am, may I have another? And I move, and then the church uh, hopefully would want to have me and all those type of things, or the pastor that's sent there. Um, that may be a thing of the past with this new denomination. There would still be some oversight in the sense of a, a bishop would sort of stamp the approval, but the bishop wouldn't necessarily be in charge of placing those people anymore. And the biggest thing that you would notice in a church is a new recall to discipleship. Um, they would take very seriously the idea of, hey, if you join a church, that also means you're going to be into some discipleship type program, right? That there's going to be some more than just I show up on a Sunday morning. But there is an active and uh, very... Uh, Intentional is probably the word I'm saying. Discipleship for everyone that would be part of it. 
Now I wanted to say some critiques to uh, this because every group you can have a critique to. And by far away, the biggest critique to this new denomination and the people that would see this way is how people would leave the church. And what I mean by that is no matter what way every church and every pastor goes, some people are going to disagree and not be able to have a conscience for that group. However, this is a little different. And what I mean by that is it's one thing to leave a church because you disagree with infant baptism or you disagree with something uh, else, you know, like open communion or something like that to have a theological difference. But it's another thing when people leave because they feel unwanted or unaccepted or as a second-class member of the church or even unloved. And so when you think about kind of where our world is and how we view ourselves and a lot of the ways we define ourselves, when it comes to things like sexual orientation, or kind of maybe you can even go as far as even say sexual preference even as well than orientation, are these seen in our world as parts of identity, right? So someone identifies, this is who they are. And so if the church says, we think that's outside the bounds of what scripture calls us to do, no matter what you say, that feels like unacceptance. That feels like you're not being fully accepted and fully loved. And oftentimes it causes a very, very deep hurt in that person's life. And of course, not just that person's life, but our loved ones, so our family members, our friends. And then the, on top of that, there's also the challenge of God calls all of the church to love everyone and do ministry with everyone. And so for a new church, you know, what does ministry with, I'm just going to shorthand term, the queer community look like? Especially for a group whose identity is wrapped up in that idea. And that if acceptance is sort of the, the non-negotiated stance you have to have to even have a conversation, how does that church do ministry with a people group such as that? that would say, you know, look, to even have this conversation, there has to be acceptance. And the church is called to do ministry, so how does that work as well? And to do it in a way that's a loving and cherished way. Um, another uh, a critique to this is it could become a safe haven for hate and bigotry. And the simple truth is we live in a world where people hate people for all these reasons. You know, hate signs and hurt signs and all these different things. And while the church, the Orthodox Church would say, yes, we disagree that this is part of scripture and we disagree with this is how the way God has called us to live, that church would not separate this sin from all the other sins that are in our lives. And in fact, their whole purpose of saying is that every single person that's ever lived besides Jesus Christ is a sinner and needs love. And so the tone of saying, hey, we disagree with this is not one of hate or bigotry or making someone intentionally feel hurt. It's one of just simply saying, I am also a forgiven sinner, and I see scripture saying this, and to offer that. But of course, that is going to be a fight, because many people may cling to this and say, hey, we want to come to this church, but really their hearts would be filled with that hate and bigotry, truly, instead of being filled with Jesus Christ. And the last critique I would give is, as far as the United States version of this, you know, whenever you get a group of people together from this persuasion of the Orthodox persuasion, it unequivocally always feels very old and white. And, and, and I almost want to laugh about that, but it's so true. And really, it actually is a critique of this belief. Now, I don't think the belief itself is necessarily old and white. You know, I don't think that's necessarily adherent to what the belief of orthodoxy is. And in fact, historically, it can't be if you look at the history of orthodoxy. But it does make you wonder, that is that characterization of old and white for those who would claim to be orthodox, is it a product of American history of the last few hundred years? And the Orthodox Church would have to overcome that. And in fact, it couldn't settle for just being, quote unquote, old and white. It would also have to be settling for something much greater than that to be the church of the future. 
So those are some critiques that I would give that I think are very valid ones. Uh, but then I want to spend just a little tiny bit of time talking about the GMC, which is the Global Methodist Church, once again, versus the UMC. Because as I mentioned before, is many people in the, in the middle would identify with all these groups. So what is the difference between so someone that would believe all these different things, orthodox beliefs, but wanted to stay in the middle versus someone who would want to be in the GMC? And the difference, I think, really comes down to this question. How much are you willing to accommodate? Now, of course, there's the one issue of maybe someone just specifically disagrees with homosexuality or the LGBTQIA inclusion elements. But as we saw last week, when we really looked at the more progressive part of the church, it's not just this one issue that is at stake. In fact, the church has been arguing that one issue for 40 years, but we've stayed together. The deeper issues, if you will, are really other ones. And why I claim this group is the Orthodox group is because they really hold on to this Orthodox belief of what the church is supposed to be. And what I mean by that is the church has been classically defined that to be a church, you have to be these things. You have to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. There's four categories. And every seminary student on their first year can tell you these things. And what we mean by one is that there's one God. There's Jesus is uniquely divine. There's one cross and resurrection for the atonement of sins. There's one baptism in, in the world. And as we look, that is open for debate nowadays in the, within the Methodist church. And holy, while we all kind of disagree and there's a lot of interpretation of differences of holy, none of the fact is, is that you can't argue that we're supposed to be different than the world. And so arguments that are made that, hey, the world feels this way, so the church has to change to accommodate it, don't really mean much when you think about what the nature of the church is supposed to be. It has to be a deeper argument than that. And in fact, if you look at history, so many times when the church is accommodated to the world just because it wanted to be more liked, it ended up in some very bad situations in very bad ways. So we're called to be different, and we can disagree on the differences, but nonetheless, if we just withhold the whole idea of being holy and separate than the world, we lose who we're called to be. I'm gonna start with apostolic, then go back to Catholic. Apostolic is really that we hold to the teachings of the apostles, and that the teaching that the apostles passed on to us are the teachings of the church. Now, commonly, we know that as the Bible, right? And that's commonly how we experience that here today. But the early church was very serious in what letters made it into the Bible. One of its cr criteria, if you will, of what letters made it in was, was it from an apostle or not? And then finally, the word Catholic, which means universal. It's kind of the idea of the universal church. But specifically, we mean this, is that when the church did come together in the Council of Nicaea, and they say, hey, what do we believe? Let's, let's iron this out totally and write it down on paper. They asked, what did everybody hear? In other words, if you're over in Alexandria versus you're over in Rome versus you're over in Jerusalem or if you're over in Damascus, if you're over where, did we all hear the same thing? And they said, here's the message we all heard. And that's what they mean by Catholic. So not only was it apostolic, but it was Catholic in the sense that all of them agreed that this was the message. And they all had different apostles that had come to them, different people that had shared it with them. But nonetheless, they said, this is the message that we hold dear and what we have. And as you can see, as we talked about before, in so many different ways, for the Orthodox person, these are what the church has to be. If it's does not one of these, it's not the church. And we can see how many of those are up for debate in the church nowadays, here and now. And so I think the biggest difference between the Orthodox camp, I would, or the people that would be, you know, mostly Orthodox, but also would stay within the Methodist church, I think the biggest difference is how much is they're willing to accommodate, how much conversation is they're willing to have with all these different issues. And basically what the Orthodox Church has said at this point is they don't want that church anymore. 
And in fact, they're willing to surrender the signs, the symbols, the heritage that they hold so dearly and everybody holds so dearly, but they're willing to say, you can have it because it's worth it to have a church that would be one holy Catholic and apostolic church and wouldn't have to debate many of those issues. And so they're willing to go and start a new denomination. Now that would be kind of sort of the difference. So in other words, you could be someone who believes in scripture, believes in the Apostles' Creed, believes in the cross and resurrection. You could believe in miracles. You could be a non-fundamentalist person. And whether or not, whether you fall in homosexuality, you could still fall in the center position. But the difference would be really how much conversation do you want to have with those larger issues at the church? And specifically, even if this local church doesn't want to, do you think the denomination should or should not? And so those are some of the biggest issues uh, you can see that are pressing the church. Now, the good news is for you, again, I've told you before, you're not being asked to make a decision. You're not being asked to choose a side. You're not even asked to be making to plan a vote or anything like that. I'm simply wanting to inform you in these moments, what are some of the issues at stake? When you hear about it and read about it, what are some of the things being said? How is the world and the church different now than it was before? And why in the world is the church really, truly gotten to the point where it had a professional mitigator come in and decide how the church should split. In essence, you can look at every group, they kind of get ultimately what they want, but they all sacrifice something. And so we, again, we don't know when that split may come, but at some point when it does, wanted you to have at least that information that you could wrestle with yourself and understand kind of the issues that are at stake. I always recommend, don't just take my word for it, go find these groups, listen to what they're saying. But I would tell you, instead of just listening to what they, the end result of what decision they make and how they come down on certain things, listen to how they decide those things. Because that's also important, right? It's important to know how you come to a decision just as much as the decision that's made. And so make sure you pay attention to that because of course in the future, a church that decides certain things a certain way will continue to decide future things in certain ways as well too. So that's how I have it for you. Again, I know these are issues we don't necessarily want to talk about. We love to just be the church. We love to be just the family of God. But unfortunately, uh, in the days ahead, there will be um, a point probably where the church may have to make a decision. Um, and that's, I've already reached the point where I've said, enough, my chips are in on this. And I've already uh, proclaimed a side, if you will, that I belong to. So again, I love you. I love every single person in this church. I wish it was the case we didn't have to have these conversations. I wish it was the case these days would just kind of be kicked down the road, if you will. But unfortunately, I don't think that is an opportunity for us to do it. So I wanted to inform you and do my best to help you not get blindsided about what is coming down the track. Well, we're going to continue to worship with our offering.